Hey, it's Anita, and this is Bitcoin and Co. Hello, dear listener, welcome to episode 80 of the Bitcoin and Co. podcast. I'm talking to Zachary Kelman today. He is a New York-based attorney specializing in political, legal and regulatory issues in and around Bitcoin, crypto and blockchain technology. Prior to this, he was working in banking, monitoring international money transactions, looking for suspicious activities. Coming out of this environment, he was introduced to Bitcoin by his brother Daniel Kalman, who was the architect of the civil rehabilitation plan for Mount Gox creditors. And Zachary afterwards left banking for crypto projects in the Caribbean and Southeast Asia. If you have a question, please send me an email to hello at anitaposch.com, that's posh with a C in between the S and the H, Or you can visit anita.link forward slash 8080, where you will find an audio recorder to send me a message. You will also find the show notes of this conversation on this page. And now a word from my sponsors and then enjoy the conversation. Shift Crypto and the Bitbox O2 Hardware Wallet. I did an interview with the inventor of the Bitbox and co-founder of Shift Crypto, Douglas Bakum, recently. It's episode number 77. Tune in to hear about his intentions and the core values behind the production of the hardware wallet. To be financially independent, it's important to hold your own keys. Shift cares about making it easy for you to keep your Bitcoin safe. The Bitbox is Swiss-made and makes it simple to store and use your coins. I especially like that they have a Bitcoin-only edition too. And I can use the hardware wallet with my phone. Check out the Bitbox O2 at anita.link forward slash bitbox02. You will get a 10% discount if you use the code ANITA in the checkout. Local Bitcoins is one of the most trusted and the largest peer-to-peer -peer Bitcoin trading platforms in the world. On local Bitcoins, you can buy and sell your Bitcoin in an easy, fast and secure way, always protected by escrow. Local Bitcoins allows you to trade directly with people like you. And you can choose any currency you prefer and find a safe payment method to complete your trade. Local Bitcoins also offers a web wallet, so you can trade and deposit and send out your Bitcoin all in one account. Go to www.localbitcoins.com to buy and sell Bitcoin. Not your keys, not your coins is one of the basic rules in Bitcoin. Therefore, I definitely recommend using a hardware wallet to store your Bitcoin. But if you have difficulties with the technical requirements and constant maintenance of hardware wallets, you can use the card wallet. The Card Wallet is a very simple and secure solution for long-term storage of Bitcoin and Ethereum. No software updates needed and it leaves no traces on the blockchain, which is good for your privacy. You can give it away as a gift or inheritance. You send Bitcoin to it and all you have to do is to store it in a safe place. The manufacturers are the Austrian State Printing House and Coinfinity, Austria's first Bitcoin broker, founded in 2014. 
Order your card wallet at cardwallet.com forward slash Anita and get 20% off. And finally, a shout out to the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network, where you can find other Bitcoin-related podcasts like Proof of Love, Bitcoin Audible, POV Crypto and more. Hello, Zachary. Thanks for taking the time to do this interview with me. Thank you, Anita. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. Please introduce yourself to our listeners. That's what we always do first. What's your current position? Where are you located? If you want to tell us that. <laughs> what's your main? Yeah, what's the main focus of your work? Well, my name is Zachary Kelman. I'm a managing partner at Kelman PLLC. You can find us at uh, kelman.law. We are a New York-based law firm operating in pretty exclusively in the crypto space. We do litigation work for in the U.S. and we also so sort of any kind of litigation you might need that has a crypto focus. That's kind of contract disputes, founder disputes, ICO issues, anything that has a crypto focus that might result in, in litigation. But that's that's not where we. I started in the space. I've been in the space pretty early on, starting off more as an investor and working in, 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 in compliance and working with various projects internationally. So I've, I've been in the space since pretty early on. As, as, and my partner, my brother, Daniel Kelman, has also been in the space from the early days. He, he's pretty well known for the whole Mt. Gox rehabilitation claim situation. And yeah, we've just been focused on trying to help crypto projects with their legal litigation issues. Uh, we also do a bit in terms of regulatory advising with getting licenses and Uh, compliance programs, international structuring, things like that. Okay, great. Then you are the perfect partner to talk with me about international crypto regulation. <laughs> Because, I mean, I usually find this very dry. I'm, I'm really not the type of person who would want to be a lawyer. But to see how these regulations play out in the global power system, I think is very interesting. And I also want to dive with you into the question of if Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies could disrupt the system that we have at the moment and this power hegemony that's basically in the US at the moment. That's great. Well, yeah, and, and I think you're right. It, it, it seems dry at first glance. But I actually find that this subject is pretty interesting to most people. It's, it's kind of opening up a Pandora's box to an extremely important part of global politics and international affairs and global economics that I think people don't, it's not, it's not commonly discussed or commonly understood. So, and, and crypto, Bitcoin in particular, kind of opens that up in a way that wasn't quite as transparent before it existed. Yeah, exactly. Tell us, how did you find out about Bitcoin in the first place? When did you hear about it? So I was working in banking in New York around 2011, 2012, 2013. My background is doing compliance, as I've mentioned, in, in uh, New York-based banks. I worked with Credit Suisse and Morgan Stanley. And most of what I did, I, I worked most of the different roles that you'd have in a compliance um, office. So there's this a transaction monitoring role where you're looking at transactions for suspicious activity and detecting them and dealing with kind of actioning those items up the chain, as well as enhanced due diligence where you're, you're looking at the clients very in-depth doing extra research on them. And this, most of this occurred in correspondent banking, which is a fancy word, but what it, all of those wire transfers and money that is sent around internationally through banks is, is done through this 
kind of this, this system, which is mostly centered around New York City. You have about 12, 13 banks that have what's called dollar clearing, meaning they can, they're authorized by the US to be able to clear US dollars and transfer them. And so all of the banks in the world kind of center around that. So let's say you're sending money from Mexico to Spain, you might have a direct banking relationship, but if you're transferring through US dollars, chances are you're sending it from a small bank in Mexico to a larger one then to, to the US uh, in a New York-based bank, it's dollar cleared and then goes through another chain to, to Spain or somewhere like that. So I was looking at those wires and kind of analyzing that world. And around this time, my brother got into to Bitcoin, actually, and he started telling me about it. And I, you know, I almost, I, I don't want to say I, I was FOMOing, but I, I, I kind of was a bit skeptical. I, I love the technology and I believed in it almost immediately. But my first thought was, they're going to they're gonna make this illegal. There's no way this, this will be able to continue because I kind of understood immediately the threat that it posed to the system. So I was skeptical at first, but I, at some point I started to get dabbling into it. And yeah, I mean, it, it just never, I ended up never looking back, eventually left and went and worked for a project in, in the Caribbean and uh, worked there for a year, helping them work with the government to get, to become uh, able to operate, offer crypto services in that country. And then worked for a similar country in Southeast Asia there as well. And had a pretty international footprint prior to focusing primarily on this uh, U.S. litigation firm. Mm -hmm. And what's so interesting for you, what's the most interesting characteristic or property of Bitcoin in your eyes? Well, for me, it was coming from that lens of working in banking. I saw, I, I, didn't, I hadn't realized this beforehand, but the, the way that money moves internationally is through this very linear correspondent banking system. You can move money in pallets of cash and gold and things like that, but the ways that you, that you would do that would then heighten your risk to having access to that system. And so it's almost like, it's almost like a, I don't want to use an, a, a religious analogy, but it kind of reminds me of like a, a church or something where the Catholic church back in the, uh, you know, in the, in the uh, medieval times prior to the Reformation, where you, the, the church kind of blessed everything and that the, the church's seal of approval was everything that you, you know you needed. That's not to say that the US dollar and US regulators decide what, what has value and what doesn't. But if you pass through these dollar clearing banks at, at the top of the system, once it goes to the other side, the dollars are cleared and cleaned. So realizing that and realizing that all these international wires transferred through this bank and knowing that my role was to filter them for what is high risk, what's low risk, what's money laundering, what's not money laundering. When I saw this system, which presumably allowed huge amounts of value to pass internationally without any, at the time, it felt a lot more anonymous than it does now, but without any intermediaries, certainly, and with a, with a sense of, 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 of being you know, private, much more so than the bank was at the time, that, that really intrigued me. I saw it as a, a sort of hedge on, on the current system in a way that nothing else prior to which had, had offered. Uh, it, it was the first competitor to that system, in my view, in, in modern times. You just spoke about that these institutions or these banks are like the church, basically, back in the days. And you might have heard from Tour de Mester's paper on the Bitcoin reformation. He exactly says the same, that it was a hierarchical system that came down because people didn't want to pay, I don't know how it's called in English. Oh, indulgence. Yeah, to the, the church anymore. And, and so the, the great reformation started. And yeah, it's interesting that you say that. And please tell us about the historical development. How 
did we get here? I mean, when did this all start, the system that it's so US-centric? So I'd look at, you, you kind of have the rise of the US economy in the early 20th century in a world which was this kind of mercantile world where most of the world was carved up by European powers. And they had overt protectionist policies and their own monetary systems in these areas and protected them. So you really had many different worlds, many different monetary worlds, you could say. And look at the Great Depression, what, what caused it after the First World War, you can see the seeds of this happening. So you, at the end of the First World War, you, 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 know, you had the Versailles Treaty and kind of a complicated, very impoverished world trying to, to, to kind of reeling after the war. And so different, you had for the first time this group, the League of Nations, which was somewhat ineffectual, but did allow for coordination amongst these countries in some level, or at least planning around coordination. So we can look at what they wanted to do and what they were concerned about and how the different relationships between these countries worked during this time. Clearly, they were all worried about global economic issues. They were worried about deflation. Uh, what's going, what are all these countries' monetary policies? How are they coordinated? So most of the European countries owed significant debts to the U.S. Uh, Germany was owed. Germany owed lots of, of, of war reparations to mostly to the French, but also to the British, and were unable to pay them. The French policy was something something similar that, that sort of gold bugs today would like, which was a very deflationary policy where they were trying to hold as much gold as possible. And overall, ultimately, the and, and the U.S. ended up uh, with this Smoot-Hawley tariffs, which tariffed the rest of the world. And ultimately, it, there, it was a disharmonious international economic world. U.S. policymakers in the early 20th century, leading up to the Second World War, wanted to eliminate this mercantile world. They wanted a world that was a free trade world, um, which we have today for the most part and have had since the end of the Second World War. But, you know, it, it's hard to even to conceive of this as a revolutionary thought in the early 20th century. But it was. It was a we're going to eliminate these borders, you know, and to do that especially at the end of the Second World War, where this system emerged, palatable to, the, to these countries. The mercantile system protected workers and wages and things like that. So you had the Marshall Plan as a way of rebuilding Europe, which ultimately allowed Europe to enter into this global free trade system centered around the U.S. dollar. We call it the Bretton Woods system. And so ultimately it led to settlement happening on the dollar. The dollar became this, this global peg. It eliminated this kind of what you might call this policy, monetary policy coordination issue. Rather than having every country court, you know, on their own monetary policy, you had everyone centered around the dollar. If you want to look at an, a modern analogy, you look, look at sort of the euro crisis and how budgets worked. U European countries can't really coordinate around budgets in the same way. They coordinate around many things, but you know, you, a lot of the issues between Northern Europe and Southern Europe in, in the uh, Euro crisis were the fact that the Southern Europeans wouldn't uh, change their, their, their budget. And the, Europe, you know, the European Union is more or less threatened by that. If, if, Europe, if Europe had one government that controlled the budgets of every country, they could coordinate policy, but they can't. And so previously you, you had a system where central banks didn't they all had their own they were all hedging with gold and other currencies they didn't have a centralized system so that was the appeal of the dollar system emerging after Bretton Woods one one central hub obviously that's not the only source of value you still have gold and everything else it's not as it's not quite as centralized you know as I'm making it sound but comparatively to the earlier model it was much more centralized and we've had that since the 40s essentially where most of this world banks hold dollars they treat dollars as gold 
and the U.S. controls that dollar supply. And so New York Department of Financial Services in New York licenses those banks that are allowed to clear dollars, are allowed to take currencies, trade them, and, and kind of, you know, rather than just trading like Forex, they're actually able to clear them effectively at, at that bank. And that's sort of where the policies are, are centered. The U.S. has its own financial policies. You can, you know, you can talk in the later 20th century, well, the AML policy, the money laundering policies, the Bank Secrecy Act, and then ultimately the, the you know, Patriot Act and everything else came from the U.S. And because of the U.S. system, it, it just it caused all the other countries to have to develop their own internal system similar to it. If they didn't do it, then the U.S.-based banks at the top would have to start de-risking them, classifying them as being higher risk, paying more attention to them. So it just kind of emanates from this New York chartering system. Mm -hmm. And I think in Bretton Woods, Keynes proposed the Bancor, which would have been a global currency or something like that. But the US, whereas after the Second World War as the winners, they were so powerful to say, no, we use the US dollar. Is this correct? I think that's right. Yeah, it was. Uh, but if you look at the policy discussions beforehand, that system was something the US had long wanted. It's not, you know... Mm -hmm. To, to say, you know, I think that what Keynes proposed would have been more sensible. Uh, that this was a time where the U.S. power was at the at a max, and would have been difficult to convince them for the good of this overall system to to do a mm. monetary unit like that. The IMF tries to push out a, a similar model to today. Um, to this day, they they still have an alternative they like to push out. And then the U.S. dollar was backed by gold up until 1971. Right. And then, yeah, and then in, how was it called in 1971? Nixon? How was this called? The conference where he dropped the gold standard? I don't remember the name of the conference. Uh, me, me too. So, but anyhow, <laughs> <laughs> what, what the fuck happened in 1971? <laughs> there, there's a, no, the website is without this uh, swearing word. There's a website about that because You can see on the charts since right, then right. The, 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 the fiat managers, yeah, went overboard in a way. Yeah, I just think it's obvious that gold-backed dollar was not long for this world. You know, I mean, if you think about how long did that last, 20 to 25 years? And if you look at previous fiat systems, they last about that maybe 20 to 5, 30 years. I just think this system, because it's been so universal, has lasted longer than any other system. So you, know, you could just start it in 71 after the gold standard collapsed and look at it until now. And yes, you're right. These graphs show this. The global outstanding debt is, is a hockey stick curve coming out from that period. But what happened? You know, the, the, US, the US had promised to be able to repay the debts in gold and could no longer do that. There's a limited supply of gold. There's an unlimited supply of dollars. You know, it's, it's not surprising. I think Fr France w wanted its gold back. France, Brit Britain did, uh, a number of countries did. Uh, maybe the best case I could make for it was just short-sighted uh, international planning. The U.S. controlled, what, like a third of the world's GDP and most of the world's oil supply and, and so forth at, at the end of the, first, of the Second World War. And so they just didn't foresee Japan, Germany, and many other countries rebuilding within a couple decades and it no longer being sustainable. As far as I understand, we have a U.S. hegemony and a Western world-driven hierarchical financial system where I would say maybe some thousand people decide on the fate and chances of billions of people worldwide. Is that right? I think that's the traditional system, but I, I think that that model has been eroding over time. 
it's mostly from democratic means. I mean, I don't, if you want to jump into some of the more recent policies we've seen from countries, particularly in Western Europe in the past couple of years, or just the way that that, that system's beginning to erode a bit, you know, you can see that changing a bit. But generally speaking, you look at the 20th century, well, the late 20th century, the banking policies we've seen, it's been emanating from the U.S. US policymakers and international organizations like FATF that have coordinated with these U.S. policymakers. Mm -hmm. And what are the consequences for maybe smaller countries or countries that are not so economical, well established in a way, if I can say that that way? Do you have maybe an example of a nation state that is affected by these regulations and is a so-called high-risk country? What are the consequences then for the citizens of these countries? Well, you know, it's, it's kind of dicey territory. Uh, I mean, you know, I can, I can mm. talk a lot about these countries and, and how this adversely affects it. The first thing that comes to mind is if you look at certain countries in sub-Saharan Africa, particularly countries that have a lot of guest work. I mean, you look at South Africa has a lot of guest workers from other countries in Southern Africa, and those guest workers pay up to 20, 30% at certain points on remittances. And that's because there's a huge chain of, of funds going back and forth, and the risk rating is considered very high. So, And to be clear, when it comes to risk rating, who sets these risks? It's international organizations like FATF following up on the U.S. There isn't, a, there isn't an objective measurement. There, there aren't you know, academics and scientists and people finding, measuring exact risk. It, it, is, it is inherently political. And you know, again, it, it, I don't say it's without merit. It's not 100% political to the point where there, there aren't higher money laundering risks and it's not measuring it at all, but it's certainly not measuring it on a one-to-one -one basis. One of the good examples to look at is well, how do sanctions work? I mean, you, you know, the international community would sanction North Korea or Iran or what have you. And effectively, what we're saying is that entire country are criminals. Uh, they're, they're blacklisted effectively. Now, now, we're not literally calling them criminals, but we're saying we're treating them in the same way that you'd treat a known criminal money launderer who has been proven to be a money launderer in another country. Or if you look at more you know, individual sanctions, uh, when the U.S. is upset with another country and decides we're going to sanction Russian, Russian oligarchs or someone like that, you know, Russian oligarchs that are money laundering are already sort of, I don't want to say sanctioned, but the, their, their funds are meant to be investigated and they're meant not to be customers of, of most international banks and their activities are considered money laundering. If they have criminal background and you can show their source of funds is, is illegitimate, which in many cases it is, but when you formally sanction and say, these are, these are the bad guys, you can't do business with them, it's the international community deciding that. And, and that's, not, that's not, you know, the bulk of where this kind of unfairness in the system comes from. I'm just highlighting that as a way of saying, it's kind of irrefutable that not everyone in Iran is, is a criminal and should be, you know, and again, there are geopolitical reasons I won't get into as to why Iran is sanctioned. But the point is that it, it shows that the system does have an inherent political element to it. And I, I wouldn't say that's the case in the developing world. It's more that, um, you, you know, you, you, you have one, a much more thorough, banks in New York have a much more thorough understanding of their other banks. These banks are wealthy and powerful institutions. The U.S. passes a number of policies. And, you know, you can look at Patriot Act, for example, which requires banks to not only record information, not only track all the, the movement of funds and but also to, to do some level of, of transaction monitoring and investigating and reporting. So the U.S. required that of its banks. 
And then, so it, then it began in the correspondent banking system, looking at their correspondent banks. So like the next step in the chain. So maybe rather than New York-based banks or major European and Japanese banks that have New York clearinghouses, they'd then look at the second chain. So like, you know, third tier banks in Germany or large Italian banks or Spanish banks or, you know, some, some larger banks in Eastern Europe, they would then be told, look, uh, we're, you know, you need to implement anti-money laundering policies. FATF would agree on that. FATF is made up of all these member states. The, the nation states would then pass their own laws and start developing it. And it kind of goes down the chain. And so smaller banks in places like sub-Saharan Africa aren't, aren't seen as being able to do this. And also, you have to, in order to gauge the money laundering risk, you have to be able to look at uh, a lot of information about people. You have to have kind of complex databases. It, it, I don't know if you're familiar with the Adhar system in India, but this is India's attempt to get everybody in that country on some sort of registered, with some sort of registered ID and name and identity. And that's sort of a way of trying to catch up for, for India's banks in this system. So again, it's not a, it's not an objectively unreasonable system, but the way it plays out is, is grossly unfair to the developing world. Do you see any chances that Bitcoin and other open cryptocurrencies can, like say, better the system for everybody, like make it a fairer one in a way? Yeah, I, I think so. I think Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are really apps that allow, that use blockchains as a way of transferring value, maybe stable coins. I, I, you know, we'll see how it works in the next decade or so. But yeah, they're a counterweight to this because what you have is you have this system emanating out of New York and it's missing a lot of the world for, for the reasons I laid out because these other places can't develop the, the types of, of transaction monitoring systems that these New York, originally New York, US-based policies and then Europe and elsewhere require them to, to be able to do, to be able to vet their clients, vet their transactions, gauge risk, hire people to, to look at these risks. So yeah, I think that they will. I would note too, to the earlier point, if you, if you noticed earlier this week, the, the information that came out about all this money laundering and, you know, going on in the US through these banks. And again, this is coming because these banks are reporting this information to the treasury. And that's, that's the part that was leaked was from the treasury, these banks saying, Hey, we found this stuff. Take a look. What it shows you is that a huge amount of the money laundering is happening in the developing world. And so mm. gr groups that list what are high risk and what are low risk, like FATF makes a, a list of who's high risk, who's low risk, who's on the blacklist and things like that. These things don't have any formal mechanisms. It's not like FATF can sanction or harm countries, but the banks look at this. So when these correspondent banks are figuring out, do we want to you know, quote unquote, de-risk this lower bank, cut them off from being able to have access to this system, that, that FATF list is very influential. And it's, it's not totally transparent. It's, it's somewhat political. FATF is kind of deciding this. And, not, and again, that isn't to say that there's no validity to it at all. And they're just, you know, pulling countries' names out of a hat or going after the ones they don't like. But it is, it is political because it's not being done through some objective decision-making. And as we know from seeing The, the revelations that came out this week, a lot of, at the very least, a lot, and I would argue the bulk of the money laundering is happening through these banks, through large, through, through, through the countries that are deemed low risk. So, yeah, <laughs> it's inherently <laughs> you, political. Do you see ways to regulate these kinds of things and find money launderers and people who do illicit activities? I mean, it's also a question in one country, an activity is illicit or illegal in another one, not. But 
what's your idea or your take on that? How should we regulate this or should we not regulate it in a way? Because that costs a lot of money also. Yeah, it's a, well, I'd say, look, it's, there's clearly a trade-off. I mean, a lot of what gets stopped is illegal activity. I mean, if you speak to people that work for FedEx, I'll tell you right now, if anyone from those organizations is listening to this, what they're thinking right now is, well, there's, there's human trafficking, there's all these horrible things, we're, mm. we're preventing that. And, and they are, and it's, you know, it's, a, it's, you know, you kind of have to figure out where you sit politically. You know, there's, there's trade-offs, right? It's not so transparent. Either you have this, this system as you have it now, and, and the people in these organizations would argue we should keep it and perfect it and try to make it better and fine-tune it. But I don't think that you'll ever not have the trade-off of harming financial inclusion and also having these, these controls and rules. And I don't trust that these international organizations are totally apolitical. I, I think most of the people working for them believe that they're apolitical or, or uh, you know, uh, well, well-intentioned. And I, you know, I'm, not, I'm not saying that they're not. I just think that this system itself causes less, prevents people from having the financial inclusion. I think we benefit overall from the financial inclusion. I don't know. My, my personal view is that, that uh, you know, protecting journalism and transparency and figuring out what's going on in the world and exposing it is, is a better approach. You know, a lot of what goes on is, is uh, it, you know, what I, I think some of the best things that these banks do is they go after dictatorships and, and corruption in countries. And, you know, to some extent, if you can prove that this country is corrupt and it comes out publicly, and again, it's a bit subjective, sometimes there's corruption that's protected and sometimes there's corruption that's exposed. But to the extent that that happens, these banks are doing a good job of preventing that. But yeah, to, to put it succinctly, it's a trade-off. Either you have the freedom to, to do this and it's not being monitored and, and prevented and, and there aren't people deciding what is, what is the bad money and what is the good money. What are, you, what are you allowed to use banking for and what are you not? And there's no gatekeeping. You have much more freedom of transactions. And to the extent you have that, you have less of it, but then you also have less um, crime, international crime. I don't think banks and the banking system should be, personally, should be as involved in in, in international policing. Um, mm. So I don't I don't agree with it to that extent. And I, I think more importantly, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and other alternative means of settlement and payment are, are a stopgap. You know, to me, they're they're a counterweight that will exist as a way of of, of preventing the system from from moving too far. So I don't think the system is going to collapse or go away. We'll just have a multi, kind of a multi-tiered system, and this, this system will have to compete with the with something rather than be a kind of monolith. Yeah, but don't you think that the regulations that all the or many nation states are working on will also like crack down on Bitcoin transactions the same way as on like say traditional financial transactions? Well, if you think about it, most of what they're Well, it depends on the country, right? So if you're talking about Venezuela or Iran or, you know, Russia and some of the countries that are passing laws that are literally cracking down on it, um, then yes, it's, that's, that's heinous, right? So, you know, Iran's not allowing people to transact, but having them do their do mining or Venezuela requiring them to mine, but you have to be sanctioned by the government, things like that. Yes, that's, those are examples of that. But for the most part, what you're seeing are they're trying to, to, map out the blockchain, show who's transacting on it, require um, what they Fadif calls VASPs to show who's, who's using their platform. And, and then they're enforcing the laws that they already have on the books. They're not necessarily coming up with new laws, but more so 
allowing them to force these companies involved in the crypto space to disclose who's using it and then you know force them to do the same kind of anti-money laundering techniques banks do my goal is to educate as many people as possible about bitcoin if you like what i do please contribute and support my work with a monthly subscription you will get bonus content, early access and ad-free podcast episodes. If you prefer, you can also donate Bitcoin or Lightning. Visit anita.link forward slash p for more information. If you can't afford or have other priorities, I understand. You can also support the show. For instance, write a recommendation on Apple Podcasts. You can do that even if you do not have an iPhone. Go to Apple Podcasts, search for Anita Posh, scroll down to Reviews, click on Write a Review and write a few words. That's it. Thank you. Just today I read that Russia's finance ministry wants uh, crypto users to have to report their digital wallet addresses, transaction history and balance. If the wallet receives more than 100,000 Russian rubles, that's around 1,300 US dollars during one year. So basically that's every transaction one does. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Do you horrible. think that the... Yeah, that's horrible. Exactly. Do you think that these kind of measures are also possible in other countries or in will the, like, say, Western world be more easy on that? I mean, I'll, I'll say this first about Russia. One of the things that you'll, that is quite common in banks dealing with Russian clients are that they have a, often you'll see a lot of suspicious activity that turns out to be innocuous. A lot of the time, a lot of the techniques you see in, in, in money laundering are used by people that have are not money laundering in, in you know the Eastern Europe, former Soviet republics. A lot of the time they're trying to hide money from their own government. And so it looks mm -hmm. like it's money laundering and you investigate it and it's legitimate. Um, but no, I don't think that's... So I will say this. I think it's like you have big, powerful kind of empire states like Russia or even like the United States, China, and to an extent the European Union that are not totally accountable because they're so large and they're pursuing policies that are to protect their own currencies and to protect their, their systems. Whereas I think the smaller political units are not. And so you can look at some of the laws that European nations have passed that seem to be at odds with the EU level policy. You know, the French, there's a French law that's exempting. And this, again, this is, this is kind of undermining it, but not directly attacking it. But the French Uh, have, a, have a law they recently passed that I believe it exempts or there's a lower tax rate for crypto transactions or and I believe they're and, and I think Portugal's got a similar law exempting on-chain transactions so crypto to crypto and so that's intended to, to bolster the crypto space Germany is 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 allowing banks to engage in crypto services now these are things that if on an EU level you're looking to undermine the rise of cryptocurrencies and protect this kind of Uh, financial system and pursue these anti-money laundering goals that you hear a lot of these you know high-level high discussions at EU level and you know, obviously the United States, FATF and other NGOs talk about it undermines them, right? So I think that it's it's complex because on an, an individual nation-state level, strategically, and the world's becoming increasingly kind of bifur or bifurcated, but you know balkanized, I guess you could say on this level, the NGOs are, are kind of waning. Uh, 
as a result of that, on a nation state level, I think certain countries are going to pursue policies that foster this and, and try to bring the business to their shores. And actually, if you look at flow of funds in 2017, during the ICO bubble, most of the flow of funds comes out of places like China and Russia and into places like Western Europe and the United States. So there is an incentive for a place like fr uh, France to, to do that, to try to foster a community and bring, and bring uh, the projects there. And so it's a, it's a tug and pull. And I think, I think, you know, to the extent that these countries are democracies that are not beholden to NGO or ultranational level decision making and interests that you'll see, you'll see, you'll see a kind of a, a, a tug of war and on a the smaller nation states or regional level, you'll see them move away from the, the supranational interests. That sounds a little bit as if you would think that there would not be an agreement on the international global level that all governments or many governments would agree on a worldwide ban of Bitcoin. What would yeah. you say? I mean, it kind of brings us back to that World War One conversation, you know, that the world was not organized in a, system, in a global system that could make these decisions back then. Uh, and that's what led, in many, view, in many views, to the Great Depression. People in the World League of Nations tried to get France to not go with the gold standard, and they, they tried to get the U.S. not to pass these tariffs, and they tried to get the European countries to change the Versailles Treaty to allow Germany not to have to hyperinflate, things like that. But they, they couldn't coordinate it because you didn't, you, you didn't have this massive NGO world. Many of the countries, U.S. included, didn't even sign up for this, this structure. So it's a, it's a, it's a battle. I guess my point is I think that these NGOs that we've had since the end of the Second World War are waning in influence and power. And so maybe the moment where you could have seen a ban on Bitcoin, if there was one, was a few years ago and that's passed. I, I, don't, I think it's, it becomes less and less likely over time because certain places have it in their interest to do it. And also, it reminds me of international attempts to get rid of online gambling about 15 to 20 years ago. They, they, it was like a game of whack-a-mole. You know, they would, banks would try to make it illegal. They'd go to different countries. And the, the international community tried to stamp it out. But it just kept going to different jurisdictions that saw it as an opportunity to, to foster that, that industry. And it's worth a lot of money. And so we still have a Westphalian system. We still have nation states in the world. And we have NGOs applying pressure, but they don't have... They don't have direct control over these countries. And again, I, it's, I remind it for European listeners, it's a bit like the European Union. The European Union has a lot of control. It doesn't have budgetary control. It, it doesn't control the voters. It can't force austerity on, on countries. And similarly, NGOs and international groups that want to set these agendas, they can't go into develop, to small developing countries or offshore jurisdictions and force them to, to follow the rules they want them to. They They, their major mechanism of control is through the banking system. U.S. will pass banking regulations. They'll start de-risking and, and charging more money and, and punishing banks that don't follow similar regulation all the way down the chain. But that's not, especially with, with Bitcoin as a, as a hedge against that. Yeah, it's not, it's not direct control in the same way that a country can just pass its law and say, you have to do this. And the extent to which countries you know, don't allow or don't go along with this path, it makes it very risky for the countries that, that want to pursue it. So I, I could see an attempt down the line to do something like that. I just don't think it would work. And I think it'd be too little too late. You just uh, were talking about online gambling like 15, 20 years ago. I, as I read today that Iran is also going to mine Bitcoin with their own power stations and Venezuela also, the government wants to mine by themselves. Also, China is a country where many miners are. 
it, uh, it reminds me also a little bit about criminals use Bitcoin, you know, because now everybody is using Bitcoin in a way. Maybe other nation states start to mine Bitcoin too. Totally. I mean, you could even look at it as a microcosm in the U.S. I'm sure that the Fed and banks and Treasury Secretary, we've heard Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, talk about this. They don't like Bitcoin. Donald Trump's tweeted about it. You know, that Congress, we've had congressmen come out and say, Bitcoin's a threat to the dollar straight up. A congressman, Henry Waxman, said that a year or two ago. But so they can pass policies, they can encourage banks, which are now very tightly regulated by the Fed ever since the, the, the laws, the uh, Dodd-Frank laws after, after the financial crisis. They're all regulated directly in, in very close contact with the Fed in a way that they weren't beforehand. The hedge fund community's not. You know, home offices are, are not. So individual people looking at this system and starting to worry about it are hedging against it. And so it's, it's not really possible to stop it because there just isn't that level of control. The, the, the amount of power and control that the system has has always been illusory. And most of its power comes from the, the collective belief in that power. But it's never really been that. The world's always been much more decentralized than, than that. So, it, it, you know, if you, if you time scale it and you look it out over a long period of time, it's inevitable that it'll spread out and that more people will be incentivized to take, to hold Bitcoin. And, and you know, and on and an international level, it gets more complicated. So countries like China and Venezuela and Iran, for, I, I think I mentioned this in, this, in that article at Cointelegraph uh, around, around the end of the year. And basically the way I look at it is, they have a, a, it's like a moon, moon landing thing. In the short term, adopting crypto-friendly policies for these countries is bad because it erodes their own currency base and allows people, it, it harms their ability to have monetary control, trying to keep their, their economy, you know, keep their money in their own economy. Their biggest threats are the dollar itself. They're, they're kind of outside the system a bit trying to maintain their own currency uh, or currencies in the case of China. So for them, Bitcoin allows people to move money in and out in a way that they don't totally control, which is why you see policies like Russia saying, oh, no, we're going to track it all or Venezuela and what have you. But in the long term, it's like a moon, moon landing. It's a big or, or a, you know, what you, the Manhattan Project or some big project that if they can actually use Bitcoin or, or, or promote, accelerate this process to the point where it, it knocks the dollar off of its position uh, as a global reserve currency, then it, then it was worth it. Right. So. They want to, on some level, it's in their interest to topple the system. So they, they'd like to do that. But to do it harms a lot of their nearer term goals and their own monetary stability. So it's, it's a tough system for them, which, is, which explains the policies you mentioned. That's why Russia wants to make sure that they know everyone's you know, wallet addresses and know what's going on. And, can, and if they catch someone with Bitcoin that didn't register, it, they can throw them in jail as a way of, of kind of preventing people from, from not having to use rubles and trade with rubles and keep that, that system afloat. But also they want to foster it, you know, and, and these countries want to foster mining because it's, it's bad for the U.S. dollar hegemony. The article you were referencing is Insiders, Outsiders and Experimenters in Crypto Regulation. I will put the link to it in the show notes. It's a, it's a free part uh, series of articles and it's very interesting. Zachary, we were talking a lot of a lot of these regulations and stuff, and you were also working like on in the center and allowing transactions or controlling them. How do you protect your personal privacy while using Bitcoin? You know, I I think that there's a lot of good projects you can use. Well, first of all, obviously, don't hold money on exchanges. You know, uh, 
use hard hardware wallets to the best extent that you can. You have to have key maintenance. I recommend Casa. You know, I I don't have any secret sauce for that. I I, I kind of just follow the standard um, advice from best practices. We do we do custody for, for third parties as well and, and kind of escrowing and things like that. So we have to be pretty careful. Oh, you do that with your company? That's right. Oh, didn't know that. I thought you only do like consulting and stuff. Litigation, okay. consulting, things like that. But yes, it, you know, if, if people need to do, you know, we do our own vetting and things like that, but we can also do escrowing. Mostly, it's, oh, mostly a service, it's mostly a service we do for clients that need it, you know, and that we're already working with as opposed to you know, like a standalone service. But. Interesting. I wanted to ask you also a general question about lawyers. <laughs> do you do you see a difference between the, let's say, a little bit older generation of lawyers and young ones in terms of their position to cryptocurrencies? Yeah, it's kind of a funny question because the way I look at it is most of the best, law is one of those skills that you get better at as you get older. So most of the best lawyers are a little bit older. And so if you're hiring, if you want a lawyer that understands crypto, it's hard to learn about crypto if you're in your 40s. It's not intuitive. And I'd also note most of the American lawyers are kind of vested in the U.S. system. So when I talk to U.S. lawyers, it does seem, you know, A, they're so used to how the U.S. system works. And B, they take for granted that it's always going to exist and always have this international or this, this kind of yeah, international reach. So they just seem to want to be protecting the U.S., And the U.S. system, they seem to defend all the U.S. laws whenever they're out there, and and look at it, look at the upside of those laws as opposed to taking it in an international focus on it. And that tends to be the case with most of the of the crypto lawyers. I don't really know too many who are many like Bitcoin. The ones I know in America that like Bitcoin, they're more just kind of like libertarianish gold bugs that see that don't like the dollar, and it's a bit, it's not a very you know, they're not, they're not as interested in kind of the the international effect of Bitcoin as a, as a hedge on the system per se. It's more, and this is true, I think, in the U.S. in general. The focus is, hey, Bitcoin's a good gold replacement as an investment, not Bitcoin is a way of allowing the vast unbanked world to have access to, um, financial, to, to, to financial services and, and develop that part of the world. Mm. Or to personal freedom and stuff. Right. Yeah, I mean, I mean what I can say It's, I mean, I was 47 when I started to learn about Bitcoin. It works. <laughs> <laughs> we can do it if we want. That's right. <laughs> yeah. What do you think do most people overlook when they talk about Bitcoin? Or maybe what are you missing in the public discourse about it? Yeah, it kind of dovetails on the point I was making just now, which is I think most people don't understand the financial inclusion issue in the developing world. So, and they don't understand why people would, would use Bitcoin. To them, it's they're looking at it as an asset class with their investment profile. That's the way it's discussed. It's this sort of CNBC approach to, to Bitcoin. It's, it's a good tool to hedge your profile of US-based assets and, you know, and, and, and fixed income and, and, and equities. And you, know, you want to include a little bit of Bitcoin in your, in your portfolio. And you know, it, it's kind of seen as, as that, as a hedge, as, as a deflationary asset in an inflationary world. Rather than it's a tool for international settlement outside of the system, it's a, the censorship resistant component kind of got forgotten. And I think a lot of it mm -hmm. is that is the 2017 bubble and, you know, all these, it does seem like there's this permanent, you know, innate pyramid scheme feature in the crypto space that's, attract, you know, it's, it's the shiny object attracting everyone's attention. 
and the the actual alternative system that it presents is something that's moving very very slowly and growing very very slowly and so you don't notice it but that to me is a much more interesting and, and ultimately impactful difference an impactful mm-hmm. feature of bitcoin that's just and crypto in general that's just I don't want to say it's overlooked. It's not as exciting. And the information about that is not as relevant to people. Exactly. It's not such a hype about it. But for me also, it's the more important part of, of Bitcoin. Yeah, Yeah, I think it's in part it's because I think most people are looking at it from a self-interested standpoint. They're looking at mm-hmm. what am I going to make money off of? And if you're looking at it from an intellectual standpoint or kind of academic standpoint or even just political standpoint, it's more the other feature is more interesting than just Uh, price action yeah and in general we are like very concentrated on our next surroundings on our daily life and we don't look outside your our own borders or the borders of our country and yeah but i think the 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 real impact that bitcoin can have will be a support or a tool for now as we say it always underdeveloped countries But they need it actually much more than we do. Yep. And I would yeah. say too, I think one of the things that bridges the gap for me with people when I, when, who are more in the kind of, I, I call the CNBC focused world of, of crypto is people are wondering when, when are the other features of Bitcoin going to become relevant to people? When are people going to care about Bitcoin as, as, as a non, non-stable coin, non-US dollar settlement tool? It's not as good, obviously, as as, as a you know, what do you, credit cards and things like that. And to me, it's when, when it, when a major currency collapses, it changes overnight. Every single, right now, the, the understanding of the dollar versus Bitcoin, when you would use Bitcoin, if the dollar loses 20% of its value or, or, you know, and this happens in other countries when their currencies lose huge amounts of value, the perception, you become a different person. The people become different people in terms of their economic outlook on these different assets. They, we only, don't appreciate the the deflationary the truly the appreciate the deflationary component and hedge against the dollar that bitcoin provides and ability to transfer it because the dollar has been has lasted so long if that changes just briefly you know for a period we become we look at it radically differently we look at it as we, we, all the other features of censorship resistance and you know a freedom component of it become a lot more attractive we just don't know why it most developed or most people living in the developed world don't understand that because we've been privileged enough to have this stable, especially in the US, a stable currency for so long. Exactly. But we don't know how this will play out in the coming years with all the uh, pandemic situation and the endless printing of money. Most people, yes, exactly. But most people, I think if you really talk about it with them, they know that it's going to end. I mean, there's some people mm. that work for major financial institutions or, you know, they, they don't They'll, they'll say it. it won't, you know, most of the time, if you, if you really discuss this with people that, that are, really believe that, they'll, they'll eventually cave to the point where, hey, yes, maybe, but we're decades away, or what's the replacement, or those kinds of arguments. But just look at the U.S. political situation. I mean, the U.S. didn't have a significant national debt, or most of the developed countries didn't 20, 30 years ago. Now they all have debts that are well in excess of their GDPs, their central banks, you know, inflate or... or, or, or Discount window or the rate at which they lend at is becoming zero or negative. These are all new things that didn't happen before. So how do you, you're going to just look at the U.S. as an example. Does anyone really think that the U.S. Congress is going to come together and, and pass laws and, and pay down the debt and that, you know, the, 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 it's just not going to happen. So that that alone is one issue. Maybe the U.S. 
craters in the dollar remains. But I, you look at, at Fed policy, that's that's kind of headed in a direction that increasingly feels like it's a point of no return. So mm-hmm. I don't think it's if but when. And I think most people know that at this point. Maybe they didn't know that 20 years ago. Maybe they didn't even know it after the financial crisis. But I think at this point, most people kind of intuit that it's a matter of, of when and not if. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think financial basic education would be so important because most people do not know where money comes from. And just some days ago, I had some friends here at my place and we were talking about Bitcoin and I asked them, what is money? And one of them said, uh, it's backed by gold. And I said, no, it's not. You know, it's really everybody believes this because we don't learn about it. And I think that's, that's the main should or could be a main focus of educational work in a way. Well, I'll be honest with you. I, I think it's one of those things where, you know, children in, in the developed world don't, or let's say just look at any country where you have some place where everyone has a lot of money and then you have some place where it's high crime. The people living in the high crime area have tend to develop higher social IQs and have what's called street smarts. It's not because their parents teach them to have street smarts. I mean, to some extent they do. It's because the reality of not having that and the consequences of not having that is very apparent to them. They, they get hit by the pain of, of not having that awareness over and over again. So I think the mm-hmm. only thing that's going to change this is, is the school of hard knocks. And that is, the, the, you know, the, the actual consequences of the policy of, over a long period of time. So once, once the market changes, once it's, once, you know, whether it's the dollar or some of these other currencies, but most likely the dollar kind of actually has a, a, an actual crash, a serious crash, it'll just be a sudden realization for everybody. It'll be a very quick uh, you know, change of, of opinion, I think. Mm. Yeah, right. Yeah. But I guess it would be great if some of the people would be prepared. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, what can you do? Some people are, hopefully, hopefully the people listening are. I mean, that's what's great about these podcasts. Is- yeah. We're coming to an end now. I have one last question, actually. I stole this one from Tim Ferriss. I'm <laughs> saying it every time. It's uh, if I were to buy you an ad on all social media platforms and you could decide the text, the short message that we are pushing out into the world, what would it say? What would you like people to know? <sighs> that's a tough one. Um, I'm going to give you kind of a boring answer. Um, it's going to be kind of lame, but yeah, I, I don't think I'd even say anything about Bitcoin or crypto or anything like that. I think, you know, that I'd say something simple, like, you know, life is, is short and be kind, be kind to people while you still can, while you're still alive. Yeah, it's, it's true. And <laughs> thank you for that, for that <laughs> reminder. Yeah. Yeah. It's easy to forget, but it's, it's, yeah, it's really important. I was, I, I don't know why I'm bringing this up, but I was driving and I just saw an old woman walking across the highway with a little, one of those step, what, what do they call it? The, you know, the, the walkers in front of her. Mm-hmm. And it just, just struck me how fragile life is. And we're all thinking about politics and Bitcoin and crypto and everything else. But yeah, you can't forget how fragile it is and how short it is. And I know this has nothing to do with crypto, but yeah, that, that, that was, that's why that's present of mind for me right now. Is, yeah, you have to be kind to the people around you, no matter what. That's true. I completely agree with you. Thanks for that. <laughs> so, Zachary, where can people find you and follow your work? Okay, well, um, you can come to the website. It's www.kelman.law. On Twitter, it's at Z Kelman, uh, K-E-L-M-A-N. I'm on 
Coin Telegraph. I do articles periodically, so you just Google Zachary Kelman. That's probably the first thing that comes up. And yeah, that's that's pretty much it. And you can reach me on the website if you just go to Kelman.law. Send me an email. It's uh, info at Kelman.law, but yeah, just www.kelman.law. Great. I will put that all into the show notes. Thank you very much for your time and this interview. It was great. Uh, very uh, great insights into the world of regulations. <laughs> Thank you. Anita, and have a nice day. Thank you. You too. That's it for today. If you like my show, please share it with your friends and hit the subscribe button in your podcast player now. Thanks to my sponsors who make it possible that I can produce the show. Localbitcoins.com, Shift Crypto with the Bitbox O2 and Coinfinity with their card wallet. Music. Start with yes, delicate beats. Idea, content and production. Yours truly, Anita Posch. <laughs>